0: I want to get pretty serious pretty quick this morning. So here's a question I want to ask. Have you ever thought about what your life is? What, what is your life? Have you ever asked that question? What, what is my life? What does it mean? What does it matter? What's it for? How much of your life, when it comes down to it, is just existing? from one moment to the next moment, to the next moment? How much of the real work of your life is just filling up all your moments with things that distract you from asking that kind of a question? How much of the real work of your life is about distracting you from that one inevitability that we all face, death? Isn't it true that for many of us, the whole point of our lives is to forget the fact of death? It's October. You drive down the highway, what are you going to see? It's harvest time. It's harvest time. You drive down the highway, you're going to see corn being mowed down. What were you going to say? Roadkill. Roadkill, yeah, you're going to see that too. You're going to see roadkill. You're going to see the corn being mowed down. Harvest time means death. And it's the time of year we allow ourselves to think about death and dying for just a little bit, but not our own deaths, the deaths of other people. We watch scary movies. We do, you know, weird death things. We we celebrate Halloween. We think of other people dying because dying ourselves is scary. But we still need a little bit of catharsis once a year before we go back to fighting away the thought of death and dying. Right. Uh, last Sunday we had a church picnic at the Joneses. It was a lot of fun. I left it early to take uh, Abe, my middle child is very excited to be mentioned in the sermon. Um, one of my five middle children, um, <laughs> to a baseball, uh, game. And, uh, I flipped my car in a ditch on the way there. And, uh, we crawled out on our hands and knees Abe has a small scratch on his neck from his seatbelt. You can barely see it. Um, Add a little scratch right here. And that was it. But we could have died a week ago today. That kind of thing is scary. Death rarely intrudes on our lives like that. That happened on Sunday. On Monday, I went and watched uh, the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. James Bond, a character that regularly faces death and walks away, right? Um, in the movie, the villain gives a speech about how all we really want, all the masses really want is oblivion. And that's why we fight or spend our lives fighting to be oblivious to the purpose of life and of death, of realities, spiritual realities like God and judgment. in judgment. And that speech, in that moment, in that movie, and its implications filled me with horror. Is that what I want, really? Oblivion? If I had died the day before I saw that movie, would I have been ready to meet Jesus? Have I lived in such a way that dying for me is gain? What would that even mean? For dying to be gain, Christ must be life. And that's what today's passage is about. We're in Philippians, and we're looking at the life of the Apostle Paul and his relationship to the church at Philippi and he is in prison facing his death. He doesn't know it for sure, but he knows that it's a real possibility. Facing death is not a new thing for the Apostle Paul. Um, <laughs> forgive me for saying this, but much like James Bond, the Apostle Paul faced death all the time and walked away. He did. He looked death in the face many times. We read in the passage, uh, that passage a couple weeks ago where he recounts all of those things. Remember, beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked a night and a day at sea, all of those things. The man had seen it all. Riots, imprisonments, everything. And so here he is in prison in Rome. He's about to face Nero, one of the bloodiest emperors to ever live. And he's thinking about what's going to happen. And he's trying to reason it out. And he's trying to prepare the church at Philippi for it. And he's doing it. Uh, for the Philippians, right? They're worried about him. They're concerned about him. They're concerned he's going to die. So that's where we're at in the letter to them. That's this morning's passage. We're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at the very end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving and caring for each of us. You've numbered the hairs on our heads, and not a single one of them falls to the ground without your will. You feed the birds of the air, you clothe the grass of the field, and we're your children and you love and care for us much more than birds and grass. Help us this morning to stand in awe of your care for us. Fill our hearts with joy and gratitude and wonder. We all have many concerns this morning, things that weigh us down, places where we're weak or in pain, where our consciences are troubled. We pray that you would draw near to us this morning in our pain and our weakness, in our sin. Pray that you would deliver us. We pray this morning for Evan and Danny and Micah, that you would heal their arms and legs and make them healthy and whole. We pray for our children and children's church, that you would bless their time there, that you would make them obedient and respectful, and that they would learn and grow in godliness. We pray that you'd be with their teachers, that you would give them patience and faith, and that you would assure their hearts of how important their work and Discipling these little ones truly is. Pray for the churches in our presbytery that you would bless them and that you would cause them to grow as souls are saved and lives are transformed. We pray that you would use them to raise up leaders for your kingdom. We pray that you would use us to raise up leaders for your kingdom, pastors and elders and deacons who serve this church faithfully and in time other churches as well. Pray that you would be near to us this morning as we study your word. Give us soft and tender hearts. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question. Why is the Apostle Paul so chill about facing death, if chill's the right word? One answer we could give is that Paul, like most of us, doesn't think it's really going to happen. Verse 19 sounds like he could mean that he's going to be delivered from prison. Verses 25 and 26 make it pretty clear he thinks that's the way it's going to turn out, right? Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your joy and progress, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again, right? Pretty inarguable. He thinks he's probably getting out of there. Based on those few verses alone, people actually do believe that Paul did not end up dying in prison or being executed. They believe he must have been acquitted because here he says he's convinced he's going to be let out. Logic is on his side. He's a special apostle. People need him. His mission isn't done or it doesn't feel like it's done. So he's probably going to get out of this somehow, right? That's what's happened to him time and time and time and time again. I feel that way about myself sometimes. You feel that way about yourself? We all kind of do, right? We're not going to die because we're not done with the work that we have before us. We're not going to die because there's stuff left to do. Those things can be true and not true at the same time. They can be held in tension. I was in that car accident Sunday. I could have died. What would have happened if I didn't walk away? What would have happened to my family? What would have happened to this church plant? I'm not trying to be melodramatic about it. Car did its job, the frame held up, the seatbelts worked, the airbags worked, everything was great. We walked away like we were supposed to because because Honda did a good job. But still, one little thing goes different and everything changes. And how much closer to death was I in that accident accident, than any of us are when we get in a car? I didn't die in part because I still have work God wants me to do, right? Things are unfinished. It would not have been good for my family or this church plant, but I could have. Things like that do happen and they don't always make sense. I had a friend die this past week, cancer. He was an old man. It was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. He was ready. He was prepared. His family was prepared. His wife was prepared. His grandkids were prepared. We were prepared. I don't know. He was probably sung into eternity with family gathered at his bedside. I had another friend die almost a year ago. We're still not ready. None of us are ready. We still need him. We still miss him. There's still a huge hole that hasn't been filled. That hole is real. It's bigger for some people than others. And yet we rely on God and we trust him and trust that he's enough for us, even though our friend still isn't there to fill that hole or our brother or our father. God's ways are not our ways. At the end of the day, our logic doesn't matter. Only God's wisdom matters. I can't say definitively one way or another if this imprisonment of Paul's ended in his execution. What I can say is that he was imprisoned in, in Rome, and then he was executed. He was imprisoned in, in Rome when he wrote this letter. By all accounts, he was sentenced to death by Nero after his imprisonment in Rome. So whether he walked from this imprisonment and then got re-imprisoned later. Who knows? But I think the burden of proof is on people who say he somehow got released and then put back in prison. I don't think that this sense he had that the church at Philippi needed him is proof enough to say that he was released. I think he had an argument that made sense to him. And I also think he didn't really know. That's why he's talking to them about if he's going to die. It was all subject to God's will. He knew that. talk that way all the time. I'm going to come to you. And then God changes his plans. He's got an idea to go do this thing. And then God prevents him. He knew that everything in his life was subject to the will of God. That's why he asked the question in the first place. That's why he poses it. That's why he points to what is most important. So the church at Philippi would understand what's most important, whether he lives or he dies. He doesn't have some kind of martyr complex. He's not a man of self-pity. He's got an idea he has work left to do, so he's confident. He's convinced. That's all. But what's most important is this. No matter how hard things get, it's his eager expectation and hope that he will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in his body, whether by his life or by his death. That's why being in prison can be a good thing in the first place, like we talked about last week. He's got a rotation of prison guards who have to be chained to him all day, every day. He could complain about the lack of privacy and the pain and the suffering of it all, or he could step back and say, I can't control my circumstances, but God is in control of my circumstances, and he loves me, and he has work for me to do, and so look, I've got a captive audience. Sweet. People here that God is bringing to me that need to know Jesus. God must have a plan and purpose for this because he has a plan and purpose for everything. And he loves me and he's given me a mission to do. So these people he must have brought to me to hear the gospel. What matters to him is that Christ is honored in his body, whether by his life or by his death. And since that doesn't depend on his circumstances, he can find joy in all of it, no matter the circumstances of his life. Yes, and I will rejoice, he says. Now, I said before that that little bit of rejoicing could be because he thinks he's being freed from prison. He does think that that is probably what's going to happen. But pay closer attention to the argument he makes. His deliverance or salvation might be the better translation there, will come in one one of two ways. Either by his life or by his death. It's my... Eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's what he actually says. That's why he rejoices. He can't lose because Christ is honored. Why? This is his answer. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything after that is commentary. If I die, I go to be with Jesus. That's what's best. I want to be with Jesus more than anything. But if I live, that means fruitful labor. That fruitful labor seems necessary to me, so I feel like I'm probably going to live. But if I had my choice, well, if I was being selfish, that choice would be to go be with Jesus. But not being selfish, I see, I feel like it's necessary for you. So I'm going to be happy about staying. The only thing that could break his joy is if his courage somehow failed in the moment. Then he'd be ashamed of himself because he wouldn't be honoring Christ. We talked about some of this last week. Christ is honored when we suffer because we show that he is more precious to us than all of the things that are taken away from us. He's more precious to us than being thought well of by our peers. So we can take a little bit of verbal abuse. He's more precious to us than our safety, so we can take being roughed up a little bit. He's more precious to us than our liberty, so we can take being thrown into prison. He's more precious than our lives, so we can take dying for his sake. But Paul's eager expectation and hope is that his courage won't fail, that Christ will be honored in what he does no matter what. That's what he rejoices in. It does not matter what happens to him so long as Christ is honored. That's the hope of a Christian our hope and joy isn't found ultimately in anything in this life. Sure, there are many beautiful and wonderful things to rejoice and take pleasure in in this life. Walk outside today and just stop and think about the fact that every blade of grass, everywhere you turn, there are thousands of things and people and ants with a life of their own that God created for his glory and your enjoyment. But they're all lesser joys that point to bigger joys that are found only in him. Ultimately for us, our hope and our joy is found in Christ. And so long as Christ is honored, that is it. That is all we need. The circumstances we we face may be difficult. They may be hard. Many of you have been through very hard things. There are people in this room who have been sexually assaulted, who have been physically assaulted, who have lost loved ones, who have suffered for the name of Jesus? The good news isn't that we escape from those circumstances. The good news is that there is a joy in life and a hope in Christ that transcends them, that rises above them. The secret of Christian joy and contentment is to have your heart and your soul, your life, your treasure so bound up in Christ that he is all that matters. So now it comes to us. And I think we're tempted to look at somebody in the Bible like the Apostle Paul and say, yeah, well, he's special. He's different. I'm just an ordinary Christian. But Paul's experience isn't unique. We have to stop thinking that way or we'll never live normal Christian lives. Everything around us is abnormal. It's backwards. It's not what we see in Scripture. And we take our our culture at its word instead of God at his word. It is true that Paul's circumstances were unusual, right? Anybody in here think that they're called to be an apostle and to suffer shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and all those things? Probably not, right? But Paul's inner life and how he responds to trials, that's not unique. That's just normal Christian living. He just had more that he had to respond to that way. We see that all over Scripture. We see it all over Psalms. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, For the mouths of all liars will be stopped. The Christian life is a life of joy in God. Joy in Christ Jesus is meant to be the main pursuit of our lives. And it's a, a thing that's realized in this life in part to live as Christ. In him, we rejoice with joy unspeakable, and it's also a joy that's never fully realized until we depart to be with Christ and stand perfected in him on the last day when he makes all things right. That's the end and that's the hope. So let's come back to the question we asked at the very beginning. What is your life? What does it matter? What's it for? What are you living for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What would ruin your life? If it were taken away from you, if you had to be really honest, really, really honest, just you before God, what are you living for? Wouldn't most of us have to admit that it's our families, it's our jobs, it's our hobbies, it's our pleasures, our escapes? Some of those very good things, some of them not so much. Wouldn't many of us have to admit that the thought of living for Jesus feels either empty or scary? Because it means maybe sacrificing too many of the things that prop us up. Or if not sacrificing them, admitting that they're idols that need to be subordinated to him. But Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. In fact, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. You might be here at Church of the King and have made the mistake of thinking that we are a family-centered church. We, if we're not careful, might make the mistake of becoming a family-centered church. We're not. We're a Christ-centered church. And that means we take the family very seriously but very seriously in its proper place, which is beneath Jesus the King, Jesus's life. When Jesus is life, lots of things sort themselves out and fall into place. Our families are a crucial part of that. So are our jobs. I met a man this past week while I was working on the sermon. He saw my Bible sitting out. It's in his late forties. He's been a believer for about 10 years. He told me the story of how he was working a second shift job so that he could realize his dream of becoming a professional fisherman. And it was working and he was getting his own TV show and he was winning tournaments and speaking to crowds of thousands and wrecking his marriage and working himself to exhaustion. And he and his wife both independently asked the question, is is this really it? Is this really like everything I thought I wanted? It's about to be in my grasp. Is this really it? Is this really worth it all? What is the point? What is the point of all of this? And they both began calling on God. And then they like had this, you know, one of those conversations where he's like, I've been thinking. And she's like, yeah, me too. And they're like, let's go to church. Found a church. He left his fishing behind. He told me, people ask me all the time, what did I, why did I give up on my dream when I was that close to it? And I say, who needs to hold a dream when you can grab hold of Christ? I have my notebook out. I wrote it down. When Jesus' is life, sacrifices like your fishing career become easy because when Jesus' is life, dying is gain. Remember what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? What owns your heart? What is it that you think about, that you give your time to, that you give your money to? What consumes your thoughts? Because what consumes your thoughts and your affections is your God. The God you truly worship. Do you worship the true and living God? The moth will come. The rust will come. You will die and return to the dust. And you will stand before your maker and give an account of your life. And what will you bring in your hands to him? Better be only Jesus. Your Net worth isn't going to amount to much. It's hard to let go of the things we have. We're all like the rich man that came to Jesus. You remember the story? The rich man comes to Jesus, says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, go sell everything you have. He went away sad because he had many possessions many possessions that were too precious for him to give up. It cost him his soul. What about your soul? What's too precious for you to give up? What will it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? We have so many defenses that keep us from embracing a passage like this with our whole hearts. God calls us this morning to let it go, to turn from the deceitful pleasures of sin and turn to him. God calls us out of our fear, out of our pride, out of our small, weak, pathetic distractions, our moment-by-moment living into joy that is real and deep and rich and full, that allows people who really have it to sit in prison with soldiers chained to either side and to rejoice, not in some fake way, but in a way that's real be able to look death in the face and say, dying is gain. There is nothing you can take from me. God this morning calls us to repent of turning away from him. To come to him and to drink of the abundance of his goodness. To taste and see that he is good. For to us, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Let's pray.